thank you, and it's uh, great to see everybody this evening, and uh, we trust and pray that the Lord will bless us in our time. So when you think back to uh, times in your childhood, you may think and remember of some of the things that uh, you shouldn't have done, shouldn't have been involved in. And uh, I remember on one occasion that uh, my brother and I, when, when we were just about old enough, I was about 10, I suppose, 10 or 11 years old, and we were old enough to be left at home alone while our parents went out for uh, some event of some description. <clears throat> it was the first time that that had happened. Um, our family had a television set, so I realize that some of you may not be able to relate to this particular incident. Uh, in uh, in every detail. And so we went, uh, uh, we were told that we had to go to bed at the usual time. We were expected to behave ourselves. And of course, we said, yes, mum, yes, dad, we'll do everything that you tell us to do. But of course, when your parents are away, you like to push the boundaries. You can relate to that. I, I, I thought Julia might well be able to relate to that one. And of course, uh, one of the things we did was to flick through the five available television channels at that time. So it, it ages me a, a, a tiny... I, I know some of you are thinking, how can you only have five television channels? It's possible. And I tell you what, it saves a lot of grief because choice is always a challenge. You know, what rubbish shall I watch on this occasion? So my brother and I are sat there and uh, we flick through to ITV... <laughs> Um, which uh, was the, the opposition to the BBC. And uh, we saw that a film was coming on entitled The Omen. Now, I'm sure that uh, I've tested it to see some of the younger people here, and they've, they, they've got no recollection of this film, which is a good thing, okay? Because my brother and I knew that we were not to watch this. Parents had made it very clear it was a film that was going around and kids at school had been watching it and were speaking about it. Some of them were absolutely terrified. And in fact, we began to understand why they were absolutely terrified. And so, of course, the film came. My brother was younger, 18, 18 months or so younger than me. And I should have had more responsibility because it really, it really scarred him. <laughs> okay. And... Uh, <clears throat> This film, the very the basic plot of the film, I mean, we watched it because we were intrigued. And of course, we said to ourselves, well, it can't be too bad, can it? It's amazing how when something sinful comes along, you convince yourself that it's all right. And one of the things you say is, well, everybody else is doing it, so it must be okay. Well, the fact that everybody else is doing it tells you it's not okay. And, uh, and so the intrigue caught us. Mum and Dad were away, and we sat... Uh, on the sofa together uh, with a pillow in front just for emergency use to cover one's eyes with as we began to watch it. So the film's plot follows Damien Thorne, a young child replaced at birth by his father, unbeknown to his wife after the biological child dies shortly after birth. And as a series of mysterious events, violent deaths occur around the family and when Damien enters childhood, they learn that he is, in fact, the prophesied Antichrist. Now, thinking back to the film, it was remarkably accurate <laughs> in many respects. 
And uh, I wouldn't like to say that I've learnt most of my understanding of the book of Revelation from watching The Omen, and maybe I shouldn't even admit to this, but it's a, a good thing to confess one's sins even a while afterwards. My brother Sam and I were scared witless to be truthful as we watched it. We knew that we shouldn't be watching it, but we couldn't stop watching it because the desire to see these things was strong. And it still is. And I realize that this, this film, The Omen, would look very old-fashioned today. And some of you would just laugh that we were in any way uh, affected by it. And yet, as I stand here this evening, I can see in my mind's eye some of the scenes in that film and the very, very scary things that took place and were presented because they've been seared into my memory. The film was evil. And of course, as believers, as people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we flee from evil. We have nothing to do with it. We flee from the devil. We shouldn't ever want to have anything to do with it. Sometimes when people come and uh, they talk to me about various issues and problems in their lives, one of the first things that I might say to them is, is there anything evil in your home? Something that you've perhaps collected? Um, maybe a talisman. Uh, maybe some sort of representative. Ouija boards and all these sorts of things. Because we shouldn't have anything like this present in our homes and in our lives. And parents, we need to guard our children because when they go to other people's houses, to friends' homes, what is it they're getting involved in? We've got to be careful and we need to be aware of these things. Friends, we must never go near evil if we can help it. And please, as I say, guard your families against it. Horror films in general are a, a genre uh, that I don't think we should be involved in and be watching. And of course, The Omen takes its theme from the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when the father cuts the hair of the little boy, Damien, he finds the birthmark on the scalp. scalp and it's in the form of the number 666. And in Revelation 13, that... Uh, Randy read so very well and at the beginning part of chapter 14. We've read together this evening and we find a discussion about the mark of the beast. And we're told that the mark of the beast is the number 666. And now here we are this evening to spend a little bit of time discussing the significance of this satanic trinity number which is presented to us. But that's not what we're really going to be looking at in a lot of detail. We want to look at some of the aspects and comparisons between the two groups of people that are spoken of here, between the two marks that are shown and that are spoken of. Because as we move forward into chapter 14, we discover that on the foreheads of those who have been redeemed is the name of God. And what a joy it is to be able to have that. So what we're going to do is to talk about this and to compare about it. And of course, we see that however hard Satan tries, he just can't get his number to the number seven because the number seven speaks of completeness and wholeness. It's the number which we see in the scriptures that so often is referred to God. So we recognize that Satan, though he tries, he just can't reach the number 
which we see as being the perfection of God. But we know that he is trying. We know that he is a deceiver. We know that his very language is deception. We also know that he is an imitator. He copies. And because he imitates everything about God, he imitates Jesus with a false Messiah. He imitates the church with a false church. He imitates the wonders and the miracles with his own form of wonders and miracles. But he can never be God. He can never be the truth. He can never save you from your sin, nor does he want to. He is 666. He is not 777. And I would point out, as we're talking about numbers, that numbers have become even more important in our society today. Numbers are so much more important to human life than at any other time, it seems. They're more important than letters. Computers work entirely, I've been told, on a basis of just two numbers, zero and one. And it's either a zero or one, and combinations of them. We are only recognized and able to live in our society here in Canada because we have a number, and aptly the Canadians decided to call it your sin number. And I've always thought, well, okay, they're talking reality here. You know, without your sin number, you can't do anything. And I think everybody in the world has a sin number, not just Canadians. Computers all have an individual IP address, Internet Protocol, I think that stands for. And all your smartphones and all your tablets, everything has an IP address, a unique address that only your phone has, that only your tablet has, that only your computer has. And that means that we're all identifiable as to what has taken place. Everybody in the world who owns a mobile phone, and I heard the other day that there's 2.4 mobile phones available per person in the world. That's a lot of mobile telephones. <laughs> Has anyone got more than one here? A few people put their hands up, young people particularly. Everyone in the world owns a phone and a unique number that identifies them and you can be tracked by it wherever you go. Personally, I believe that the internet and social media are a clear method of control used by Satan in the world today. And when we think of all the problems and difficulties in our society, so much of it stems now from the use of the internet, from the use of mobile devices and so on. So whilst Satan is not omnipresent as God is, God is everywhere at the same time, he has a form of omnipresence that we see in our society today. And that form of omnipresence, that form of being everywhere at the same time, again, deceitfulness itself, but it is in the form of social media. It is the form of the way that the internet functions and works today. Now, we come back to Revelation 14 first and the main theme of this chapter. And we find that the chapter opens in a most wonderful way. It opens very clearly with the words, Then I looked, this is the Apostle John speaking, he says, Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. What a beautiful picture that we have immediately as the chapter opens. John looks and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is standing with the 144,000. 
And what a joy it is for us to know that Jesus stands with us. It doesn't matter what we face. It doesn't matter where we are in the world. It doesn't matter what is going on around us. But Jesus, if we know him, if we love him, if we have been redeemed, if we have been saved, then he is standing with us. And he is standing on Mount Zion. And he is standing with these special saints who have been through so much of this tribulation period. But which Mount Zion is he standing on? John sees the Lamb standing. But which Mount Zion is the Lord Jesus standing on? The heavenly one or the earthly one? Well, I believe that it is the heavenly Mount Zion that we're reading of and that we read in uh, Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the holy Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. To me, we see here the anticipated Christ's coronation and the establishment of his kingdom when he returns to earth. The day of the Lord spoken in Zechariah 14. Friends, if you're saved, if you belong to the Lord, if you have come to faith in him, then you will know that the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in the heavenly Zion. Psalm 2, verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion, and we are enthroned with him. Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly realms, the heavenly places, with Christ Jesus, that in the age to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You see, the scene that we have in Revelation 14 is to assure all of God's people that he cares for his own and finally will take them to glory. In fact, not one will be lost. So now let's contrast that scene, the scene there in chapter 14, with those who have stood <clears throat> with the Lord on the Mount Zion and John who is standing on a beach somewhere on a little island called Patmos and he's watching a terrible scene in chapter 13. In fact, the scene that he's watching is worse than a horror movie that you can imagine. As I say, John is stood on the beach, we're told, and he's looking at the churning waters of the seas. And day and night on his island, he hears the sea. He sees the sea. He sees the turmoil that is going on. He sees the waves. He sees the storms that come blowing through. And I want you to think and to picture this for a moment, that the world in which we look out upon is like the churning turmoil of the sea. 
and we see the pressures and the problems that people are facing and the difficulties and we recognize that the picture, the analogy that is being shown here of the sea is so very important. Yes, perhaps looking at the Gentile nations, but we see the confusion that there is. We see the confusion that there is in government. We see the confusion that there is in society. We see the confusion that there is in morality. We see all the problems and all the difficulties that are being thrown. The currents are flowing in every direction, all at the same time. And if you've ever stood by the sea, and in North Devon, in England where I come from, then you could see that from time to time. And the currents would suddenly change and be blowing in every direction, flowing in every direction. The sea represents the confusion in the world. It represents the opposing opinions. It represents the chaos in the world, the political upheavals, all that we see blowing around us. And as John looks at this maelstrom of confusion, he then sees coming out of the sea a terrifying sight. He sees a beast with seven horns, seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns and the beast was like a leopard. What a strange animal this is. And it has the feet of a bear. And its mouth is like a lion. And if that's not enough, a dragon comes along and gives the beast power and the dragon gives the beast a throne and we're told he's given great authority. Then John tells us that the beast has one head that has been injured. It looks as though mortally but the injury has healed. And here's the thing. The sight that John has just explained. What do the people of the world do? They marvel at it. And they follow it. They follow the beast that has come up out of the sea. This terrible creature that has been described. They didn't turn and they didn't run. In fact, we're then told that they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast. And then what did they say to the beast? They praised the beast. They said, who is like the beast? There is no one as great as the beast. Who is the beast? The beast is the Antichrist. Who is raised out of the confusion and the chaos of the world. The word anti means instead of as well. So the beast is the instead of Christ. Now God does not see the beast as a man, at least not made in the divine image of God. But as a wild animal under the control of Satan. But the beast is a man. And we know this because verse 18 tells us, let him who has understanding, calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His IP address is 666. He is a man. But he is a man energized from hell. And he comes out of the pit. Revelation 11.7, Revelation 17 verse 8. So that's the scene that John on the beach sees. And now we come back to chapter 14 and we find these 144 saints who have been stamped with a mark. And it's a beautiful mark. They have been stamped with the name of God because being stamped with the name of God tells us that they are God's possession. It also tells us that they are protected by God. 
They have been claimed by God. God has identified himself with these men. Who were the 144,000? Are they the sum total of the people who throughout the history of the world will be saved? No, of course not. Are they Jehovah's Witnesses? No, they're not. To find out who they are, I have to go back to Revelation 7, where we find that they are all Jewish men, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And they have been saved and marked by God. This seal or mark indicates ownership. It also means protection. And today, those of us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have repented of our sin, who have changed our mind, changed our heart, changed our will, we discover that we too are marked by the Holy Spirit because our ownership has changed. We now belong to him. Those of us who come to faith in the Savior are all marked or sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 13 and 14. This is God's guarantee that we are saved and that we are safe and that he will one day take us to heaven to be with himself. Now all of this contrasts greatly with the beast, the false Christ, the instead of Christ, because he's also doing some marking of himself. But the scene is very different. In chapter 13, verse 16, we read, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or his IP address on them. Here the mark is being received out of fear by all people. They are afraid that if they do not conform to what is being requested of them, if they don't conform to the will of the beast, then they will lose everything. They'll no longer be able to have the ability to care for their families. And they will literally starve to death. They won't be able to buy anything or sell anything or trade or do anything. Who are these people? Well, chapter 13, verse 8, chillingly tells us. It says this, All who dwell on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Friends, it is everybody who has not repented of their sin and come to faith in the Savior. Whose mark do you have on your forehead? Have you been sealed by God through his Holy Spirit? Do you know that you belong to him? Now back to chapter 14. What's going on? with those who have the name of God written on their forehead, what are they doing? Those who belong to Christ, what are they up to? Those who are Christ's possessions, those who are protected by Christ, what's going on? Well, when we read the scriptures, we discover this. They're having a party. And they're singing. Back in chapter 13, they're blaspheming the name of God. In chapter 13... 
They've got nothing good to say. But here in chapter 14, the harps have started to play and the song that they're singing is a new song. And look where these people are singing. They're singing before the very throne of God. The song is new because the special experience that they had during the tribulation and they have a song to sing that others cannot sing. And the psalmist regularly talked about new songs. A new song, or on many occasions talks about them. Psalm 33 verse 3, for example. And as they sing, they are accompanied by angels. And God provides the orchestra. What a picture we see here. It's such an encouragement to know that one day our sorrow will be transformed into singing. The things that we go through in our lives will stop and we'll have a song to sing. And we can come before the throne of God and we can sing that. We can cast our crowns before him. Meanwhile, back in chapter 13, those who do not know the Lord Jesus, those who do not know the Lamb, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, well, they have a song to sing on their lips, a chorus if you like, a crescendo if you like. But it's not a new song. It's the same old song of worshipping man and all his achievements and worship man alone. Perhaps part of the song is, I did it my way. The words that are spoken are blasphemous against God. Blasphemies against the name of God. Blasphemies against the church of God. And blasphemies against the people of heaven. Does any of this sound familiar to you? It sounds familiar to you because this is what we see and hear today in the world in which we live. What a contrast between these two chapters. But friends, what song are you singing? That's the question for us. Are you able to sing a new song? A song which speaks about the fact that you've redeemed, been redeemed, that you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What a contrast we see here. And then in chapter 14, verses 4 to 5, John points out something about this 144 people. He says this, they were set apart. You see, they have been marked with the name of God, stamped on their forehead. And practically, this meant that they no longer belonged to the earth. Why? Because they've been redeemed out of the earth. They're no longer earth dwellers, but citizens of heaven. And the amazing thing, the miraculous thing is that that's the same for us today. Believers today, those who have repented of their sin and turned to God, we too no longer belong to this world. This world is not our home any longer. We're aliens here. We don't feel at home. And sometimes we talk about wanting to go home. And some of the songs and the hymns that we talk about talks about glory land, talks about going to that place where we will be with God, with our Savior for all eternity. Because we too no longer belong to this world. But we've got to stay till our job is finished. 
God's got a task for us. We can't leave until God says it's time for us to go. And so in the time that we have, we work hard for him. We continue to seek his will. We continue to share the gospel. We continue to encourage other people to come to faith in the Savior, to meet with Jesus. Our Lord Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 14 to 19 said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world. Sometimes when we become Christians, we think that everything's going to be okay. That everything's going to be fine. But one thing that we have to remember, and one thing that we learn here, is that when we become believers, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, suddenly the world hates us. It hates us because of Jesus. And if you want any greater evidence of the reality of the Christian faith, the truthfulness of the gospel, then look at the way you're treated by people in the world. Our Lord goes on and says, Just as I am not of the world, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And now we come back to chapter 13. Separation was the last thing on the minds of those who took the mark. They didn't want to be separated. And that's why they took the mark. They didn't want to be counted as different. They didn't want to be associated in any other way than except to the beast. Because they wanted to continue with the life that they had. They wanted all that was to be given to them. They wanted to buy and they wanted to sell. Separation was not the thing that was on their mind. In fact, they took the mark to ensure that they were not separated. The beast had authority over every tribe and tongue and nation, we're told in verse 7 of chapter 13. They had the choice. But choice means either inclusion with all the people, all the people of the world, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, or in chapter 13, verse 15, it meant death. And friends, this evening, we have presented to us a foretaste of the tribulation that we see here in Revelation. Many of the elements spoken in these chapters are with us today. The storm is rising. The waves are crashing against the shoreline. And every day it gets harder and harder and harder. And as we watch the news and listen to things on the radio, we discover that the world in which we live has changed dramatically. And it's continuing to change dramatically. And every day we're presented with choices. And every day we're being cornered. Christians are being segregated. 
Friends, everything is in place. The IP address has been reserved. And the whole world will be sucked into the deceit and the lies that the instead of Christ, the Antichrist will bring. There is much that we can go on and talk about. I had a man who came to me recently and was adamant that uh, the vaccination for COVID was the mark of the beast. And I've come across this quite often. I don't believe it was. But I will say this to you. It was a precursor. And it was an example to show to us how easy the book of the Revelation can come into play and is coming into play. And we're confronted with it all the time. Things are happening most of us don't notice, it seems. But it's there. Was the COVID vaccination program that the whole world propagated? Where governments from around the whole world were in unity? Isn't it incredible how the USA and China and Russia were all friends during that? Was it the mark of the beast? Well, as I said, I don't believe so. I believe that it was God graciously allowing us to see and to understand how all of this spoken in the word of God can happen. And the vast majority of people have not noticed. It was easy. The population of the world was excited. Because they wanted to be included. Very few people wanted to be left out. So friends, the scene is set, the stage is ready. And the characters and the props are in place. And soon the curtain will be lifted and the final scene will start to be played out. Right now you have a choice. Turn to God. Repent of your sin. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Call to him for his saving grace and receive his mark, his seal. Be separated from this world of sin. Yet there'll be some things that you won't like. There'll be things that might make you somewhat concerned. But you'll be able to sing a new song and you'll be able to one day around the throne of God rejoice because your citizenship has already been moved to heaven. Be separated from this world of sin and start to sing that song. One you could never sing before and sing it with the angels in heaven who will rejoice in your salvation. Of course, you could say, no, I don't want that. You could choose death instead. It's the option. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me, repent of their sin, 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus went on and said, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Friends, you've heard from the Father in the scriptures that we've read this evening. Nobody is without excuse. On many occasions, perhaps previously, you've come and you've heard the message preached. You've heard the scriptures read. And graciously, God is calling to you. Do you know, if you screw up your eyes tight enough, and if you stick your fingers in your ear, and you'll hear a tone for a moment, and apparently that's the blood flowing around your body, but if you cut out everything in the world around you, you will hear God speaking to you. Because you've heard his word read to you. And the message that we've spoken of this evening. You will hear it. In your mind. In your heart. As you listen. Friends. Respond to God now. Don't put it off another day. Don't wait for the final curtain call. And the end scene to be played out. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe it? Have you come to faith in the Savior? Have you called to him for salvation? Our final hymn says, face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. Will it be rapture that you meet with Jesus? Or will it be with regret that you never listened as he spoke to you, as he called you, as he explained to you, I've done this for you. Put your trust and your faith.